are going to read our, our reading today is from Matthew 3, verse 13 to 17. Um, you can read with me. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, you are not only the God of love, but you are the God who is love. And so we pray, Father, as we look closely at this um, remarkable moment in the life of Jesus Christ, that there would be a clarity, that there would be an openness uh, to, to the way, Lord, that you you have prepared us as well. May we, as we gaze at Jesus this morning, may we be caught up into the very life of God and realize the life that you have called us to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, do you remember what it was like when you were a kid and you had teachers? I, I didn't understand my teachers. Um, I didn't get them, but they were this like almost disembodied authority figure that that hovered above me and and poured down either blessings or curses, uh, and I didn't always understand why. I didn't understand how, but one paper would be an A. Yeah, that was it. You had it. Uh, let's see. A. There we go. One paper would be an A. Something else would be a B plus. Um, Occasionally, my handwriting grades were also always like a C, B minus, C plus. Um, it was not good. It was not good, my handwriting. Uh, <laughs> but I didn't always know how to, you know, how is it that I obtained that favor? It wasn't clear to me. And they were these people that I saw and that I knew in school, which I was at most every day. Um, but other than that, they kind of didn't exist. I didn't think about their home lives. I didn't think about them having kids or families. Um, I didn't think about their interests outside of school. They were just these all-powerful, often gracious, sometimes confusing, occasionally malevolent forces <laughs> that would hover over my life. And maybe, maybe that's just my kind of weird, nerdy relationship to school. I don't know. I was maybe a little bit too obsessed with it. Maybe for you, it was a coach or a pastor uh, or a parent or some uncle for some reason. I don't know who kind of had that, I'm just sort of here, and you don't understand why or how, but I am this power in your life. They represent this kind of divine will to maybe collect up all your hopes, all your fears. And in a way, for Jesus and the Jews that he lived among, the Roman Empire would have been like that. Um, they were the occupying force. Right? There is the nation of Israel, the sort of region of Judea, where Jesus and his people lived. Uh, but then you have this other nation who's there and who's really in charge. And that, yes, they allow you to make your laws and govern yourself and all that kind of thing. But on every major street corner, you've got Roman soldiers. 
right? At every major festival, you have a group of people in big shiny armor with big tall hats and the symbols of Rome stamped everywhere to let you know my sword is sharper and bigger than yours. And occasionally when you rise up and try to rule yourself, people get crucified along the highway. The Romans claimed a role that was that kind of disembodied power that you didn't always understand, but it was inescapable. Their worldly power, the way they saw it, flowed from, let's see, um, boy, it never works when you want it to work, only when you're testing it, right? As they saw it, their worldly power flowed from this relationship that they had with the gods, right? So, if you were Roman, you understood that the gods were the one who really gave favor. The gods were the one who really gave honor. They were the ones who really gave victory and wealth and who gave judgment. And so whether you had those things, it didn't mean actually that you were good or bad. It just meant that you were sort of in line with what the gods wanted or you were out of line with what the gods wanted. Okay, And so they had this thing called kind of a civic theology. And so this is how it would have worked. You are connected to divine authority if you have worldly power. All right? So if, you're, if you have won the most recent revolution or election, you therefore have the favor of the gods. All right? And the imperial order from the emperor on down in this big triangle, this big kind of pyramid scheme, is the way that the gods give blessing and honor and victory and wealth or judgment. And so if they want to give you good things because you're doing things the way they like, they're going to do it through the emperor. Or they're going to do it through the people that the emperor has entrusted to rule you. So rebellion is really, really bad. Because you're not only on the outs with your local leaders, you're also on the outs with the gods. Right? And then through that, the emperor kind of brings the divine will and manifests it through all the local leaders, the wealthy people. As they come in and conquer a country, they're going to pick out who are all the important people, how can we force them to get on our good side, right? It wasn't very hard. They all wanted to be on Rome's good side anyway. But the emperor is always the conduit. He's the pipeline. You imagine a hose or a pipe. The emperor is the pipe, but God's blessing is the water that comes through it, okay? So here's a little picture. I know that's super clear as to what it is, but let me help you here. All right, see that guy there? That's the emperor doing priest sacrifices. He's dressed like a priest, all right? He's doing sacrifice -y things. Why is this? Because the emperor was not just a political leader. We kind of like to think about separation of church and state and all of that. Uh, but the emperor is not just a political leader. He's also the top religious leader when he wants to be or has the time or feels like it. Okay? So when he shows up to church or their version of church, he's going to be the one at the table. He's going to be the one saying, no, I feel like preaching today. I got something to say. And he's just going to move into the center of the show. All right? So that was Marcus Aurelius, the emperor. This here is uh, there's kind of two figures mixed in together. 
Okay, all of these things, see the, like, the ball that he's holding and the way that he's sitting and the clothes he's wearing and that big staff that he's holding, those are all Zeus things. Okay, there's a really famous statue of Zeus that looks exactly like that. He's holding kind of the world in his hand in a way, right? So they take, they've taken Zeus's body and all of Zeus's stuff, his authority and the symbols of his power, and whose head have they put on it? That's Caesar Augustus's head. Okay, so here's what I'm here's here's what I want you to see is that there's this big kind of pyramid or triangle, and the emperor is up at the top, and the gods pour every good thing into the emperor, and then it's through the emperor that that trickles down, and the Jews were supposed to get on board with this. They were actually allowed to be a little different. They were allowed to be a little bit outside of that triangle as long as they didn't try to mess up that triangle. Right? So Rome said, that's fine. You can exist over here because your temple actually brings in more taxes than anything else in the empire. But you've got to leave the rest of us alone. Okay? You can have your worship, but you may not make claims that counter the Roman structure. All right? Well, there's just a, you know, one little problem. <laughs> is that you start reading the Bible. <laughs> you start reading Scripture. And all of a sudden you realize Scripture makes claims that go against that whole pyramid scheme, that go against that whole pyramid structure. Right? Scripture makes claims like this in Isaiah 42. Thus says the Lord, the God, the Lord, who created the heavens, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it. Even Zeus, even the highest gods in the Roman pantheon, they didn't create things. They just managed them. Who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. You see? There's no way around those claims. In that passage, where is there space for Zeus or Venus or Apollo or Mars? There's no space. This is all from Isaiah 42, which we read earlier, by the way. He says again, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. There's no share in there. Behold, my servant. Oh, yeah, so this is um, from there, right? We then have the question of how is it that God pours out his blessing into the world? And we come to know and to see that he does it. God, the God of Israel is the source of all blessing and judgment. And his reign and his presence are manifest not through the emperor of Rome. Or not through the king of Babylon. Or not through the ruler of Assyria. But in his servant king Jesus. Behold my servant whom I uphold. My chosen and whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He will just lop off everybody's head who dis No, a bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He's gentle. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands Wait for his law. 
there's a gentleness and a persistence that this servant king whom God is raising up in Jesus is one who doesn't come in destroying to prove his power, but restoring to demonstrate his love. And God's blessing here is poured out. His goodness is poured out not only through that small group of elites, right, who've been bought off, but this, this is revolutionary because nobody's ever done it like this. Still, I don't think anybody's ever done it like this. It's not through the elites. It's not through the people who are all kind of graduated from college and have their careers in order and have their retirement plans going and they know how to manipulate and order all of the people who are underneath it. That's not who God uses. Instead, I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. For who? To open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. The people God is aiming at are the blind and the prisoners. It's the people in need. In Israel, God's people, as they follow the king, as they follow the servant king who refuses to break a bruised reed, who refuses to snuff out a faintly burning wick, they become the people who lift up those who are right on the edge, whose lives are just about to break, whose souls are just about to crack in half. In fact, God is calling all humanity into rich relationship, into a rich personal relationship with himself. I know you've heard it, <laughs> but do you know what an upside-down thing that is? That the God of the universe would call every person he's created, every rich and selfish and snobby and poor, broken person who cannot manage their own life, every snotty 13-year-old, and every completely helpless eight-month-old, God has called them into rich relationship with himself. And not like a second-tier relationship. It doesn't matter if you can keep a job. It doesn't matter if you can. It, it doesn't matter if you can keep your family together or not. God has called you into that rich kind of relationship with him that's personal, that doesn't need somebody else to stand in between, but that also doesn't leave you alone in your mess. And in the midst of that, we get this picture of John standing there, baptizing, preaching. John the Baptist is the embodiment of the Old Testament. He's all of the Old Testament prophets rolled up into one. He, he's the capstone on top of it all, right? He is, in a way, the Old Covenant. 
God has taken him and placed him in the wilderness and, and had him call Israel out into that wilderness to be baptized, to go through the Jordan waters again. Why? Because it's in the Jordan that Israel comes into itself. It's in the waters of the Jordan that Israel comes out of the wilderness and into the land of promise. Remember, that's where Deuteronomy ends. It's right on the banks of the Jordan, looking over into that promised land. And here's John standing in those waters. And his cousin, Jesus, walks in from the crowd. Saying, John, baptize me. And you can understand why he doesn't want to do it. It's presumptuous. It's like, no, right? Here's John saying, I know that I'm somebody who's just supposed to point on to the next person. I'm not the point. My whole reason for existing is to direct others to you. I'm not here to call you to repentance, and yet you come to me as a penitent. Jesus shows up on the scene here as one needing forgiveness. Does he really need it? No. But he comes that way. He doesn't come as a king. I mean, and honestly, I say that it doesn't help me. I still don't understand, really, I've struggled with why Jesus needs to be baptized. Right? Why does this one who's the embodiment of God himself need to go through this process? It's the process that we understand to be you go through this process because you've been forgiven and you're now making that confession and you're coming into the people of God. But Jesus, we talked about last week, he already is the people of God. He's all of Israel's story wrapped up in itself. Right? He doesn't need forgiveness, so why be baptized? Isn't the virgin birth enough proof that he's the Son of God? Aren't the proofs of his divinity that he's going to work out the miracles? I mean, isn't all of that enough? I think there's three things. A submission, a confirmation, and a sanctification. All right? A submission, a confirmation, and a sanctification. Here's the first one. Jesus shows us that the person of the Son, right? Three persons in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're going to meet all of them in a minute. But the second person is submitted to the Father. Remember, he doesn't show up as a king already. He doesn't show up and say, hey, John, where's my crown? Right? You're the prophet. You're here to crown me. Do it. He shows up submitted to him. Baptize me. A repentant person pleading for cleansing. He appears here the way that all of Israel should have appeared. All of Israel should have been coming out to John. A lot of them were. All of Israel, the Pharisees and Sadducees included, should have been running out to John in the wilderness and saying, John, baptize us. We need to do this differently. 
Because the way that we understand authority, it's like we're still under Rome. We're still trying to make our way in that big triangle. We're still trying to get Rome to bless us instead of really trusting that God is the one who brings blessing, that God is the one who brings life. So he comes obedient to John, who is the summary and completion of the Old Testament. And when Jesus is baptized by John, he's submitting to the law and the prophets. He doesn't cancel them. Jesus doesn't come as the new covenant and take the Old Testament and go, good, we got that over with. I'm glad we don't have to read all those begats anymore. We can just toss all that out. No, he comes, he says, I'm the, I'm the summary, I'm the completion, I'm what this is all pointing to. And yes, I'm going to begin something new. Yes, we go a different direction from here, but we would not have got to this point if it hadn't been for that. So he comes submitted to it, not creating something new on his own, but coming recognizing that he needs that covenant behind him if this new covenant is going to make any sense. But it's also a confirmation. It's a confirmation of Jesus' identity, of his personhood, of his vocation, of his mission. You know, I had, when I was 13, I had a... I. We called it a bar mitzvah. It wasn't a bar mitzvah. I'm not Jewish, okay? But, but here's what the birthday party was. I was 13, and nobody younger than me was allowed to come, right? Because only people who were older than me, so it was mostly men in our church. And my dad sort of set this whole thing up, and we went to dinner, and we ate meat because you're a man or whatever. And then, and, but more important than that was the letters. Every man who came wrote me a letter, and they gave me gifts, but the gifts, I don't know, I've kind of lost most of them throughout the years, but I still have the letters, where older men looked at me and said, this is what I see in you. This is where I see God calling you. This is what I see God doing in you. And I'm going to confirm that, and I'm going to call it forward. And it became this stamp in my life. I don't even have a relationship with any of those men anymore other than my dad and my uncle. But it became this stamp where I've gone back to those letters when things were a little rough. When you needed a confirmation that, that yes, I am who God says that I am. And I am who the church has confirmed me to be over time. And it allows you to put your roots down just a little bit deeper and to withstand winds that are just a little bit stronger. And there's all kinds of ways that that has happened in my life, but we see it happening here in Jesus. We know that everybody is going to abandon him. We know that everybody's going to leave him. That he's going to be asked to do the hardest thing in all of human history. And he's going to be alone when he does it. He'll be out in front, leading. And so you can imagine how deeply he needs to know that he knows that he knows that he's done the right thing. It can't be like this, yeah, that was a good thing, you know, it was a good moment that I had back at camp, but that can't be real now in the real world where stuff is really tough. No, this has to be something that is so deep in Jesus of Nazareth, that there's no question. A covenantal union 
with the person of Jesus and the plan of God's salvation. And we see it. He's baptized. He goes under the water. And he's raised up. And what are the words? This is my son. These are, this is just from the heavens, right? Yes, the dove descends on him. There's this picture of the Holy Spirit that's present in and through Jesus' life. But then there's this voice. This is my son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. And will continue to be well pleased. that he submitted to the way and plan of God. He is confirmed in his identity and his mission. But Jesus is also sanctifying to us something important. He goes through this, A, so that we will go through it. He walks this path so that we will walk it. And that when we do, it'll be something that we can offer up as a sacrifice to him. See, the sacraments... And the Church of Nazareth, we especially have two, baptism and communion. But even the ones kind of outside of that, like marriage and, you know, anointing the sick, all that kind of, they're just normal things. There's nothing magical about the water of baptism. There's nothing, we don't get special water, right? It's, it's hydrogen and it's oxygen, and they're put together, and I think there's two hydrogen and one oxygen. I mean, it's just the same stuff you drink. There's nothing special about the grape juice and the bread. There's a couple things we do because it's sort of symbolic, so it's nice to have flat grape, you know, flat bread. And all, but those are just that's just the sort of symbol of it. It's just normal stuff. But what happens? God lifts up these everyday things for His purposes. The sacraments are normal, everyday things that Jesus makes more than that by his participation in them. And so as we see and follow him, Jesus, who does not need forgiveness, sanctifies to us the paths of forgiveness. There's this really great line in the hymn, How Firm a Foundation. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. And I will be with thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. God says, I'm going to take the worst part of your life, the deep waters, the troubles, the sorrows, and I'm going to bless it. And I'm going to sanctify it. Meaning what? He's going to take this normal everyday thing, which is human suffering, which guess what? It's a part of your life. If it's not yet, Miriam's not here unless she, she suffers too. I know I've seen her. It's a part of human life to suffer. There's no way through it. But God has not left that suffering alone as a witness against salvation. Instead, he's taken suffering, lifted it up, and sanctified it so that in our suffering, we enter into the experience and life of Christ. That in our sorrow, that in our trouble, 
We have now come in to Jesus' life, his sorrow, his trouble, his suffering. He takes our sickness. Thanks be to God this week. I'm doing better, but, uh, you know, amoxicillin is a good thing. Our anxiety, our fear, our brokenness, our weakness. And right where the enemy wants to say, God's not really your God. Because if God was your God, you wouldn't feel this way. You wouldn't go through this. Your family wouldn't look like this. No, it's right at that moment that God is most your God. That he has sanctified that moment of your life. And that if we have our head and our prayer on straight, we're offering that to him, saying, Lord, how was it worse for you? That Jesus has completed and sanctified. So as we, as we suffer that, we can offer it up to God, saying, Lord, let me suffer this peace. Let me suffer this with peace and with joy, knowing that I'm experiencing something that you too have experienced. Help me to be closer to you because of this suffering. And it's the same with the waters here. The simple act of obedience signifies and completes our repentance. Because you and I, we need, we're physical beings. We have bodies. And those bodies are made up molecules and atoms and stuff. And it's not only our souls that need saving. Our bodies need to be involved in the process. And so here God in his wisdom has actually taken physical bodily things. And not only has he become incarnate himself, but he has given us the grace of these things to sacrifice and be involved in our salvation. We sometimes, in our tradition, we get to thinking, do I really need to be baptized? Right? And, and here's how I hear that question. You know, do I need to be baptized to be a Christian? The thief on the cross wasn't baptized. Or do I need to wash the dishes to be a good husband? I mean, in theory, in theory, no. But when we come to those things that are most important in our world with an attitude of minimalism rather than maximalism, right? So our attitude is, what's the least I need to do? Rather than, God, I love you. What can I do? And over and over in Scripture, the command is regularly, believe and be baptized. They're, they're connected to one another. So if your attitude is, how can I wriggle out of this? You can. But I have no... <laughs> <laughs> I want to wash my hands of that a little bit. I'm here to tell you, we come into the love of God with an attitude of maximalism. What's the most that I can do? What's the most that I can do? And baptism is the least that you can do. We act out of the fullness and out of the overflow, not the bare minimum. Okay, so what comes next? In the story, Jesus is baptized the Spirit comes down in the form of a dove. The Father speaks, this is my Son whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. 
It is a direct and a complete confirmation of Jesus Christ. That he is indeed the Son of God. And that through his obedience, he's commissioned for the work that he's about to embark on. But what it does, it gives us this picture of what it's like to be inside the Trinity. What it's like to be two of the persons of the Trinity or three of the persons of the Trinity, which is that they are wrapped up in this inextricable relationship of both love and obedience. And you can't pull one apart from the other where it's like, well, he loves me, so I guess I'll obey him, or first he's got to obey me before I want to pour out any love in his life. No, it's this love and obedience, this mutual submission are so deeply a part of what's going on. But it goes even beyond that, where it's not just the relationship between the Father and the Son, but it's God opening that relationship up to you. The love of God. The love of God. The unconditional favor. The deep desire for communion and intimacy with you and with all creation is the very first reality. Love is first. You know, because God doesn't, like I prayed, God doesn't just love as an action. God is love. And so if God is love, that means that's, that's the primary. And I don't mean love the way the world means it. I mean the way that God means it. Which is that it's an infinite, unbelievable kind of love. It would offend you if I told you how much God loves you. Because most of us think that we're not worthy of it. Most of us think that we shouldn't be loved. That we've been too bad or we haven't been good enough. That we haven't earned it yet. God loves you as much as he loves Jesus. You know that? God loves you as much as he loves his own son. And I don't know if we buy that. I don't know if I buy that all the time. Because I'm pretty convinced that I've I gotta earn God's love first. That I gotta go out and I gotta do 89, 90, 100 things before God will really love me. But guess what? There's always more things beyond that. No, God's love is the foundational reality of this universe. It's the reason for creation. It's the reason the heavens and the planets and the stars got spun out. It's the reason that God created innumerable galaxies. It's the reason that God enabled us to participate in that kind of creation. It's the reason God put so much beauty in this world for us to participate in. God loves you as much as he loves his own son. And the offense of the gospel is that he has invited you into his life through the new covenant that he makes in Jesus. God doesn't hold back some kind of special love for Jesus. His infinite love is the same in a first century river in Palestine as it is here in Sacramento. You are loved. Full stop. You're approved. Full stop. 
spiritual growth is learning to accept that. Spiritual growth and the destruction of the sin that has taken up residence in our lives is learning to accept that. Does Jesus have a greater experience of God's love than I do? 100%. But it's because he's got a bigger basket. He's got a greater capacity for receiving it. And so what are we doing as we try to grow in Christ? We're trying to remove those things from our life that clog up the pipe of God's mercy and love. That's all. We just want to be able to receive more. In other words, God is eagerly pouring out his love, but we are learning to consent to it. So joyfully confess your sin today. <laughs> joyfully accept growth today. Because when we do that, it's not that we are confessing that we are less. It's that we are opening up the conduit for God's gracious mercy. Our only job is to consent, to accept, and to stop resisting. So, oh man, I went too long. That's okay. I don't care. <laughs> We've got this action today, <laughs> which is to remember your baptism. To remember that love is first. To remember that your core identity is who you are in Christ and that that begins and ends with your baptism. And so on the first Sunday of the year in the times that I've been here, last Sunday I kind of pulled an audible and didn't do it because I was going to die. Um, but but we have, we have um, renewed our covenantal vows together as a congregation. And so we're going to walk through that today. And again, I'm sorry it's going to make us just a little bit late for lunch, but I really think that this is worth it. Um, but this posture that I'm sort of thinking of today um, is this posture of consent, right? Which says, I'm not here to tell God what I want from him. I'm here to receive what I know God knows that I need. And so the posture I have in my head is heads bowed and hands up, right? It's one of humility. You've got your head bowed but it's one of hands up of receptivity. So I want to invite you, whether physically or, or just sort of in your heart, if you want to take that posture, I want to invite you to do that. We're going to, um, are we, did we pause here? Um, we are going to jump into, let's see, into this covenant renewal. And it's going to be before communion. Um, at communion, there's a blue cup up here. It has water in it, okay? Um, and the invitation for you is, is to remember your baptism. For me, you know, it's just dipping your fingers in. Oh, I forgot that was there. <laughs> and placing the water there at your heart. You can do it at your head as a reminder that Christ is your true head. Um, or your heart as a reminder that Christ is right at the core of who you are. That he's the center of your identity. Um, let's see, how are we doing? All righty. Oh, I've been clicking it along without meaning to. All right, you can just hit the present thing up there in the top left. Yeah.
No, see the, see the orange bar. It's just one of those things that's going to bug me. The orange bar, it's the symbol just to the uh, left of the orange. Yes. Bingo. All right. All right. So let's read this together. Oh, God, searcher of all our hearts, you have formed us as a people and claimed us for your own. As we come to acknowledge your sovereignty and grace and to enter into a new with you, reveal any reluctance or falsehood within us. Let your spirit impress your truth on our inmost being and receive us in mercy for the sake of our mediator, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. All right. O God, our covenant friend, you have been gracious to us through all the years of our lives. We thank you for your loving care, which has filled our days and brought us to this time and place. You've given us life and reason and set us in a world filled with your glory. You've comforted us with family and friends and ministered to us through the hands of our sisters and brothers. You have filled our hearts with a hunger for you and given us your peace. You have redeemed us and called us to a high calling in Christ Jesus. You have given us a place in the fellowship of your spirit and the witness of your church. You've been our light in the darkness and a rock of strength in adversity and temptation. You've been the very joy, the very spirit of joy in our joys and the all-sufficient reward in all our labors. You remembered us when we forgot you. You followed us even when we tried to flee from you. You met us with forgiveness when we returned to you for all your patience and overflowing grace. Let us therefore go to Christ and pray. Let me be your servant under your command. I will no longer be my own. I will give up myself to your will in all things. Be satisfied that Christ shall give you your place and work. Lord, make me what you will. I put myself fully into your hands. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and with a willing heart give it all to your pleasure and disposal. O righteous God, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, see me as I fall down before you. Forget my unfaithfulness in not having done your will. For you have promised mercy to me if I turn to you with my whole heart. God requires that you shall put away all your idols. From the bottom of my heart, I renounce them all. Covenanting with you that no known sin shall be allowed in my life. Against your will, I have turned my love toward the world. In your power, I will watch all temptations that will lead me away from you. For my own righteousness is riddled with sin, unable to stand before you. Through Christ, God has offered to be your God again, if you would let him. Before all heaven and earth, I here acknowledge you as my Lord and God. I take you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for my portion, and vow to give up myself body and soul as your servant, 
to serve you in holiness and righteousness all the days of my life. God has given the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way and means of coming to God. Jesus, I do here accept Christ as the only new and living way and sincerely join myself in a covenant with him. Oh, blessed Jesus, I come to you, hungry, sinful, miserable, blind, and naked, unworthy even to wash the feet of your servant. I do here with all my power accept you as my Lord and head. I renounce my own worthiness and vow that you are the Lord, my righteousness. I renounce my own wisdom and take you as my only guide. I renounce my own will and take your will as my law. Christ has told you that you must suffer with him. I do here covenant with you, O Christ. I take my lot with you as it may fall. Through your grace, I promise that neither life nor death shall part me from you. God has given holy laws as the rule of your life. I do here willingly put my neck under your yoke to carry your burden. All your laws are holy, just, and good. I therefore take them as the rule for my words, thoughts, and actions. I promise that I will strive over my whole life according to your direction. I will not allow myself to neglect anything I know to be my duty. The Almighty God searches and knows your heart. O oh God, you know that I make this covenant with you today without reservation. If any falsehood should be in it, guide me and help me to set it aright. And now, glory be to you, O God the Father, whom I shall look upon as my God and Father. Glory be to you, O God the Son, who has loved me and washed me from my sins in your own blood, and now is my Savior and Redeemer. Glory be to you, O God the Holy Spirit, who by your almighty power has turned my heart from sin to God. O mighty God, the Lord Omnipotent, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have now become my covenant friend. And I, through your infinite grace, have become your covenant servant. So be it, and let the covenant I made on earth be ratified in heaven. Amen. Amen. Yeah, right? <laughs> Not only is it a bit long, those are big, those are big claims. And so we're praying for the grace of God to live that out this year in 2020.